Today is Wednesday. It's September 20th, 2023, and it's 2.42 in the afternoon. Hi, this is John Williams. Thanks for finding the Mincing Rascals podcast. Share it with your friends. Give us a good review. And don't miss Tuesday night. This coming Tuesday night, we're recording it live at Second City. We're going to be up on the stage in Chicago from 6 to 8 p.m. Get your tickets. We'd love to see you there. I think you'll really have fun. Just get your tickets at WGNRadio.com slash Rascals. By the way, you can hear me weekdays on WGN Radio from 10 to 2. Hey, what's up, guys? Brandon Pope here, host of the now Emmy-nominated TV show on the block, powered by Block Club Chicago. I'm um, host of WBEZ's Making Podcast. Congrats. I didn't hear that news. Nice drop there, man. Thanks, man. Yeah, this is this is Eric Zorn, the publisher of the Picayune Sentinel, weekly Substack newsletter, former Tribune columnist. And if I had a vote for the Emmys, I would vote for Brandon Pope, but oh, I don't man. have a vote. So, That's so nice. So, I will try to uh, rig the election somehow. <laughs> At least vote twice. We just need what? We just need 20,000 more. Just 20,000 more. <laughs> we'll make our calls. <laughs> the no-cash bail provision of Illinois Safety Act has passed judicial review. It's been deemed constitutional, and now it's law. So as of Monday of this week, you're either in or you're out of jail. Money won't help anymore. So how are the judges doing is the question in Chicago. Have you been watching the news to see what happens when someone drives drunk or assaults a girlfriend or pepper sprays police officers or throws a chicken sandwich at someone? I have been, and I've noticed that mostly people don't go to jail. And sometimes they give them electronic monitoring, but everybody then has a court date later on. Well, look, we were told that there was going to be chaos on the streets and that criminals are going to run rampant. And hide your kids, hide your wives. Um, and uh, I don't see any of that. It, it went it seemed like it went without a peep mostly. Uh, we saw some we saw a county um, actually not go forward and do what they're supposed to do by law with the Safety Act. And we saw a few snags in some some smaller counties. But aside from that, everything I've heard, especially from DuPage, from Cook. It's been pretty smooth, and part of that's because they've been prepared. The DuPage County uh, State Attorney uh, Berlin, he, I had a talk with him where he was talking about the, the, the details and preparation they went through. They went through mock trials. They sat down with police officers and went through different scenarios with them. So they've been, prep- they've been preparing pretty heavily for this, and it rolled out pretty smoothly for those that did prepare for it. It is a big change, but it's now the norm. It's about to be the norm here in the state. Yeah, I don't see any problem developing yet and you know obviously this is one of those situations where time will tell whether this has a a, a negative impact on society or not the the idea behind this reform is that whether or not you have money should not influence whether you're held behind bars like if you committed domestic battery if if you're a threat to your spouse or to the community or a flight risk then you should be in you should be in jail awaiting trial. If not, it shouldn't matter how much money you have, whether you're walking free. And, and it's sort of it's a new standard that they that they can't just say, well, we'll we'll set a bail so high that you can't get out. Uh, and and you know that's just that is essentially criminalizing poverty, which we just don't want to do. And again, if it does if it doesn't work, if it looks like well the justice system just can't handle this, then we may have to go back and and change it. But I see no reason why it shouldn't work, um, but you know, yeah, and I, I've been re- I've been reading the same stories you have, John, about um, 
you know, judges wrestling with this stuff and, and, and letting people go. And um, again, it's going to be there's going to be anecdotes of people who are let out and commit crimes. That's for sure. That's happening already. People who are who bond out commit crimes. I think we just have to realize that there's some fundamental moral fairness to this that supersedes this idea that we can set bail high enough to keep people locked up who, if they had money, they wouldn't have to be locked up. Yeah. I think underlying that is the notion that uh, you're already guilty. You wouldn't be in this straight. You would not have been arrested if you hadn't done something wrong. That's almost always true. But the system still doesn't work that way. You still have to be found guilty before you're punished. So you should get out Better to take care of your family, go to work, mount a defense. That all makes sense. But people are still frustrated. What should happen when kids close off an intersection and jump up and down on cars? Should they be charged? Should they go to jail? What happens when somebody pepper sprays a police officer, as one woman was charged at the Mexican Day celebration, Independence Day celebration? But I think a lot of that is born of frustration and anger at what happened. But technically, those people are still not guilty of any crime. John, but right in the system right now, if a judge decides or the judge and the prosecution decide that these this woman who pepper sprayed a police officer, if they feel that she is a flight risk, if she is a danger to the community, if we let her out, then by all means, uh, keep her locked up. And, and, they, and there are certainly crimes that for which people are going to be locked up before trial. They're not yeah. going to be uh, let go. Uh, the idea that, well, if this, if this, okay, let's say we set a $10,000 bond or something like that on this woman. If she's got the money, she can walk free. But if she doesn't have the money, she can't. That's, that's, that's just wrong to me. I mean, as, as I see it. So I hope that the justice system rises to the challenge of figuring out who's a risk and who isn't a risk because this is, it is destabilizing to families and communities if people are locked up and they, they can't make money and they can't help their families and, and, and so on. So if they are found not guilty, and I know that doesn't happen a lot. But it does happen. There, there are people who are wrongfully arrested and, and uh, deserve their day in court. I think a lot of these cases, too, like the DUIs, pretty much you go home. That woman is probably not a serial police pepper sprayer. Mostly these are one-off incidents in people's lives. So the fact that you release them pending a court date doesn't mean that they're necessarily going to do it again. And the evidence in other municipalities and states where laws like this are in place shows that mostly people don't commit crimes at a higher rate than they did before. And they over 90% of the time, they show up for their appointed court date. So you don't have to keep them locked up. But what this whole thing has done is shine a light on the kinds of crimes that are being committed and what does happen. When's the last time we had a conversation about you know, the kind of nonsense that these judges have to deal with every day. And what should the system do with them? We do not have enough jail space for everybody that people want to put in jail. Costs money. That's the thing. It's it's a it's an issue that taxpayers should care about. Like this is this should ease things for taxpayers as well. But yeah, we got to get the kinks worked out. I just I haven't seen many kinks yet. Um, and obviously, you know, people who are high risk, I have no doubt they're going to be dealt with. Uh, they work to make amendments. Where they got to make sure now that they're also a flight risk too. And yeah, if they're a, you're a flight risk, you definitely are someone that is too dangerous to be out and, and about. So we'll have to see how it plays out case by case. But so far, I'd say if you were to give it a letter grade, it's been at least a B plus, if not an A minus. Yeah, and I would say it's a uh, it's an incomplete because the proof will be in the pudding. 
Are we right. going to see a spike yeah. in crime? Is now everybody going to go AWOL? Let's see if it's discernibly different. It's too soon to tell, but right now it does seem to be working in that people aren't being unnecessarily detained. They're being released. That's that's what it tries to do. To the people that say, I, well, I want the streets to be safer, that's not what this is designed to do. It's to treat people more fairly who would otherwise be incarcerated. I yield to no one in my desire for streets to be safe. I just feel like there there are going to be instances where people are let out without bond who might have not been able to bail to post cash bail who will commit a crime maybe a horrible crime and it's going to be an argument that's going to be you know run up the flagpole and everyone's going to jump up and down and shout about it the the test is going to be whether this has any measurable effect on crime rates on public safety the argument for it uh Having a positive effect is that you have people back in the community uh, and it helps stabilize communities a little bit more. The argument against that would be, well, you're letting people out who we think are pretty have done something pretty bad. And that those people, people who do bad things are kind of more likely than the rest of us to do more bad things. And if that happens, if that turns out to be the case, then the argument for cash bail comes back into play. I, I, you know, I, I can imagine the General Assembly coming back and saying, you know what, this didn't work. We tried. But but so far, as you point out, John, the the experience in other places is that it's just not that dramatic an effect either way. There's a fundamental fairness underneath it that makes it uh, a more supportable system. Well, that's it. And so you wonder what the tolerance level will be. Like, say we do see an uptick in crime because of this, right? Somebody goes, hey, you know what? I got out. I committed a crime on Friday and uh, Monday I was back on the street corner, maybe there would be a slight uptick in crime. How much of an uptick would we tolerate and weigh that against the justice that is done to the people who should not be incarcerated because they don't have cash? I keep coming back to that point. I don't think this thing was designed with the promise that the streets were going to be safer. It was designed with the promise that people who are being incarcerated, a pending trial, should be able to live their lives and pay taxes and tend to their children and not be held just because they don't have cash. That's the problem it solves. That's the only thing it fixes. No, I don't remember them saying, and this will make Chicago safer. So if it's going to make Chicago a little less safe, how much less safe are we willing to let it be before we then cancel the justice that is being done to the people that are otherwise incarcerated? John, it's, it's called the Safety Act. <laughs> <laughs> it's in the name it's in yeah the name. It's in the name. Uh, it is really but do you think i missed something there i mean was that part of the pitch i don't remember them saying and the streets will be safer there no. there are certain there are certainly people out there who, like, <laughs> who, point, who, are, who are you know the in the anti-prison movement and so on who who don't seem to care that much about public safety who who have who have different ideas than, than maybe those of us on the panel about about the value of public safety versus is the value of letting people uh, run free who have been accused of crimes or convicted of pretty bad crimes. But I think that for the most part, the people who engineered this are looking for an overall system of justice that that is more fair, is more just, and that in the long run does create safer communities. Now, they could be wrong. And I'm, I'm totally open-minded to the fact that this could be a, a experiment that doesn't work. But my, my sense so far from what I know from other places and, and just from what I've read about the law is that it could end up being actually an improvement. We could end up seeing people who are held in jail 
who need to be held in jail, who otherwise would have bonded out. Right. That's a good point. Who then who then don't commit aren't aren't walking free to commit some horrible crime. And, and you know, the uh, CWB Chicago, the uh, that news website, the anonymously run news website that uh, that basically covers crime in Chicago, uh, th- they they post stories all the time of people who are bonded out, who are who are who've been released under the old system, who commit horrible crimes. And so that's going to happen. And maybe some of these people would have been held instead of, of let go because because the uh, judge says, you know what, I, I can't just let you go. And we don't have a bail system to try to ensure you're going to come back. So I'm going to hold you. Yeah. And that person would not be free to commit the crime. So so that's possible, too, I suppose. I asked Kim Fox about that. I said, does that happen? Because it seems to me like the people who commit these terrible crimes probably don't have great financial means. They're thugs. And they don't have the money to bond out and then go on to commit other crimes. That's what we're trying to prevent here. She said, no, that does happen. Yeah, yeah. Um, and some of them, of course, have drug money I also want to uh, advise you against using the word thugs, just uh, as a as a by the way. That's, Gang members. Uh, thugs is, just, you know, Brandon, can you back me up on this? Thugs is just not a cool word to use. Brandon, in help 2023, me it's, it's, it can have a connotation, some some feel. Is that, a, is that racially charged? Is yeah. That, yeah. It, it can it's, be. It's consi- it can be. It's considered to be, yeah. I think it's I, how you use the word. Like, if you're calling, like, a... A kid and in sports, a thug. It's like, well, wait, wait, wait a second. No, that's right? not what I did just now. Though, but, right? but you know, if you were talking yeah. about an actual criminal, yeah, they uh, they technically are what they would call thugs. I, I, <laughs> you're not wrong. Well, I'm just tell, I'm just telling you that's that's a word that I would I would be careful of. Um, I did talk to Senator. John Curran, who is the Republican leader in the Illinois Senate, and he ha- spent 19 years in the state's attorney's office in Cook County. I mean, he knows well what this whole wheel is like, and in fact has been an advocate for the Safety Act and the no cash bail provision. But he does think that all felonies should meet a threshold of the judge has the discretion to keep you. He wants to amend it, and it's not going to happen this fall, but he thinks next spring we can amend the Safety Act one more time. Well, first, John, all felonies uh, would be eligible for detainment. It would still be the prosecutor uh, meeting a burden right now because of the approach. You know, we're still missing things like luring a, a minor, uh, child abduction. Those are felonies that someone cannot be detained on. Uh, under current Illinois law, under the dangerousness standard, uh, we talked before about burglary is one that you cannot be detained. Possession of a stolen motor vehicle, those types of crimes are still out there. If someone is shown to be dangerous, the prosecutor doesn't even have the opportunity to file a motion and show that that person poses a danger to the community at large or a particular individual based on where we're at right now in the Illinois law. I'm looking to broaden that. It, again, it would have put it all in front of a judge, the judge's full discretion in that regard. Uh, pardon me, John, but are you saying that in the instances you just described, luring a child into a car, burglary, possession of a, of a stolen vehicle, the judge cannot order those persons detained? It, those first couple, John, under, under e, either standard, yes. Um, possession of a stolen motor vehicle, if they're a flight risk, a judge can't order someone detained. Uh, but not under the community danger, dangerousness standard. Uh, he or she cannot. And that is, um, you know, so those are those gaps. Now, these are class four felonies, but those are, those are still gaps. He wants every felony, 
all of those should automatically land in the judge's lap with the opportunity to keep that person until their trial. Uh, That's one thing that Berlin was talking about. He'd like to still see changed over in DuPage. So maybe, yeah, I'm sure there still could be some more digging in the meat of what exactly can be detainable and what can't. Maybe we have time just to start this. Should the city run a grocery store, given the food deserts that we have, or food desserts, as Todd Stroger used to call them. <laughs> Whenever I see that phrase, I always think of Todd Stroger. He more than once called them food desserts. The food deserts that we have in the city. Maybe the city, this is the mayor's idea, maybe the city should operate grocery stores in Woodlawn or Austin or some of those neighborhoods. Stock it with good-looking peaches and fresh lean meats at good prices. I even say even run it at a loss. But I'm an outlier on this one, too. Um, the Trib's editorial was against it. My colleague Lisa Dent thinks it's silly. What do you guys think of the wisdom of the city or the prospects of the city running a grocery store? I think it's an innovative idea. I think it's something more cities should think about doing. You get, a, you get revenue, you take care of a pressing issue in the city, kind of kill two birds with one stone in a sense. I think outside the box in a sense. However, <laughs> when I think a little deeper on it. Yes. <laughs> and you don't have to think very deep is, is what I'm hearing. There's some problems here. It sounds better in theory than it may actually turn out in practice. Well, you, know? you obviously don't run an Aldi store down the street, and now the city says, oh, by the way, we're going to run a grocery store. And You're under- competing, yeah. You're, you're potentially hurting other businesses. Is the city-run grocery store going to be specifically for areas of the city like Austin that are food deserts? Yes. There is no grocery store. Well, That would have to be, and there would have to be some sort of like guarantee of mileage yeah, of how far right. it's going to be you know what i'm saying so that you're not having that competition happening here's the other issue though how's a walmart going to feel about this how's a whole foods going to feel about this how are your big box grocers who you still need to be in the city of chicago and investing in the city of chicago how are they going to feel about having to compete now with an actual city run government entity run grocery store and then also the elephant in the room like many city-run things, are we sure the city can actually run a grocery store successfully? <laughs> like, do, do they even know how to do that? Some would say they don't know how to do a lot of things that they're supposed to be doing. They they couldn't run a parking meter franchise. Every price hike right. is going to be, every price hike is going to be questioned. Every employee is probably going to want to be on some sort of city pension. It's sure, gonna, you know we're going to have all kind. And then, and anybody slips and falls in the vegetable aisle, the city's going to get sued. Um, every decision by this grocery store, everything you know, you don't carry oat squares, you know, then then the city gets all upset. And, I, you know, I'll bet Monica Eng has some interesting things to say about this topic as well. Yeah, I think you know? she's chiming in now. We just heard her Zoom petition, so she'll probably pop up here. But I just, I just see, so, I see so many bureaucratic headaches. And, you know, what happens if it, if it undercut, if, if a city-owned grocery store undercuts the prices at, say, an Aldi, Dominic's or what, not Dominic's, um, what's Dominic's? Whole Foods. Not Mar- Mariano's, whatever it's, yeah. whatever it's going to be, Kroger. If they undercut the prices, then that's unfair competition. And then, and if they sell for more, then everyone's going to have their, be, be up screaming about how the, how's the city charging more than, than Mariano's? I, I got to know what Monica thinks about this. We're going to throw her right into this and find out. If they don't have economies of scale, how are they going to keep the price? is low will the prices be subsidized 
How could they match an Aldi, which is the most ubiquitous grocery store in Illinois? In fact, we have more than any other state with Florida just being one behind us. Of, of Aldi's? Is that what you're talking about, Monica? Yeah, yeah um, and it's a Batavia-based company, and I was getting my Aldi swag this morning. <laughs> oh, wow. She's holding up her Aldi's bag, which yeah. is actually a very nice one. You were at some, it looks nice. It's some nice. sort Aldi of press event stuff. they were handing them out. How did you score well, an Aldi's? The sale. So about um, every six months, they have a sale of Aldi merchandise, and the faithful line up, and we buy it. We're like the first ones to like oh, buy it. Oh, wow. The, the hats and the shoes and the fanny packs. Let me introduce you and welcome you. Uh, thanks for joining us. Axios reporter Monica Eng is here. She covers the food beat well. We asked her to talk to us a little bit about tipped wages for workers. But just now, and I'm glad that you've just joined us, we were talking about the city running a grocery store. And my pie-in-the-sky idea was we do have bonafide food deserts that the Aldi's of the world don't seem to be able to resolve or you know, sufficiently help. There's people who have trouble getting access to good food at good prices. And you see the evidence of that when you see the waistlines and the health scores of a lot of people in the city. The mayor has said maybe the city should run a grocery store. Look, government does deliver the mail most of the time. Bad example. But, I mean, there's a lot of things we ask the government to do regularly that they do. Maybe they could run a grocery store. And I would say run it at cost or even subsidize it. Monica, to your point, yeah, even if they had to operate it at a loss, wouldn't that be a sufficient benefit for the city in the long run? People need food. They're not getting food with the system we have now. What's so crazy about the idea of the city well, trying to move into that space? Not like they weren't subsidizing before. Uh, if you'll remember, Whole Foods got all sorts of incentives, and strangely enough, right after those ran out, that's when they decided to leave. Um, I think I think it'd be great. There are subsidized farmers markets where um, stuff in in the Englewood neighborhood and elsewhere costs less than it does at a Green City market. And I am all for getting healthy food to people. A few years, a few years, I'm so old, like maybe 10 years ago, Natalie Moore and I, we went to a whole bunch of Aldi's on the South and West Side to see if they were also selling organic baby uh, arugula and kale. And, you know, we thought maybe we'd find out that they're not, but they were. And they were in some of the lowest income areas of Chicago. Are they in all of them? No. Are they very close to where that Whole Foods and Englewood left? Absolutely. But could there be more? Absolutely, too. Is there a problem? Are there food deserts? And do people people not have sufficient access to good groceries? I mean, I guess that's the definition of a food desert. But presumably people can travel. It's inconvenient. Uh, what's, What's the solution then? Um, well, over the last 20 years, I've looked at a lot of solutions. Some people talk about co-ops, and I've written about so many co-ops. And I'm like, this this next year, they're going to open, and then they don't. I mean, the only ones that have opened on my watch have been um, the Beat. Is it, What's the one in Oak Park? The Sugar Beat, I believe. Um, but it, they, they have such a difficult time getting off the ground and getting enough people to participate. I wish I knew the solution. I mean, one of the solutions has to be the hardest part of the equation, which is 
taking generations of people who have not been in a community where it's celebrated. Hey, everybody, look at all this beautiful, dirty kale I've got. Let's chop it up and make some kale chips. Let's let's make um, some broccoli salad. Ooh, look at this organic salmon I've got. When you don't have people around you all praising that kind of thing and and making it like cool, it's hard to to re-inject the idea that going to the farmer's market, spending a lot of money for fresh vegetables, coming home and cooking it and spending a lot of time cooking it, and then having your kids say, yum, yum, mom, make me some more. It's hard to create that that paradigm which encourages more cooking and more healthy eating. And when you have generations that have lost that, I've talked I've talked to a lot of um, African-Americans older in these communities. They're like, oh, you know, I see you're buying collard greens and jelly beans. Let me give you my recipe. And they said that they, they don't see the younger people in their community having that same um, tradition of cooking all those things. And that is what needs you need to create the demand mm. and the infrastructure and the education and the enthusiasm about it. If you're going to get people to buy it from the store, especially for lots of money, sometimes, I mean, it's it, uh, fresh vegetables are not that cheap. And it's so much cheaper to get a 99 cent meal or a $1.99 meal. And guess what your kids will say yum, yum, mom, they won't say this tastes crappy, which as a mom, you know, you sometimes hear that. So after you do all that work, they say, I would rather have flame and hots. I mean, how is that a reward to the mom? That is interesting. That is very interesting. It's, it reminds me of what uh, <laughs> what Michael Michael Smith said. Uh, you know, we're losing recipes. That's literally what you're saying here. Like that communal atmosphere when it comes to food. But you got to make it cool and, and make it so accessible, affordable. Yeah. Have, have people feel like they have the time? Even in, in higher income communities, people are like, oh, I don't have time to cook. Well, where are your priorities? Are your priorities and does our culture put a priority on spending hours cooking and mm. saying that's okay? It's not a waste of your time. Um, but so many of those intangibles are so much harder than a policy simply saying we will open this. Yeah. Okay, you'll open it. How do you like, you know, really get a groundswell of demand? But you're making it sound almost ethnic and I'm just thinking of it more nuts and bolts. I wonder if the people in these communities value or have access to a good bag of salad and some lean meats at a good price. I don't see that as so cultural as just convenient and affordable. And I'm wondering... And I think it should be available in every community. I mean, strangely enough, my home in Lakeview, right around Belmont and Sheffield, was classified as a food desert until very recently. Really? Because yeah. there's a jewel just down the street from there, right? Uh, not that close. I mean, certainly not within a mile radius. And that's what the that's what the definition was. When they finally opened up a Whole Foods, then we were no longer classified as a food desert. But there's that's not a poor neighborhood in that area. No. And so it was like this strange thing. Like I was looking at the heat map of food deserts and I'm like, what? My neighborhood? And I'm like, okay, I see technically with their with their parameters, that's what it is. But that said, when I go to the South and West Side and I say, oh my gosh, you know, how is it that the people have to use a gas station or a corner liquor store as their main food source that's simply not giving them access to the kinds of foods that 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 nutritionists would say they're eating? I mean, well, it's- And that's what I'm talking about here. So, I do, so Whole Foods and Jewel and maybe Aldi isn't within a mile or isn't close enough. I, I don't know what I'm talking about here. Necess- per se, but I like the idea of the city, like a fire department on every corner. I don't know. Let's have the city fund some healthier food stores 
and I don't care. I, you know, I don't know that the fire department makes a lot of money for us either. But it, we, we've deemed that it, it's a good thing for the community to have. Is there something like that that is conceivable? Maybe we use that infrastructure of fire departments. Um, there was a big push about a decade ago from Iman, which was um, a coalition of, of corner store owners, largely uh, Muslim, largely uh, uh, uh Arab or Pakistani. Um, and they said, we are going to get together because the infrastructure is there. The infrastructure of these corner stores is already there on the south and west side and said, we, um, because of our Muslim beliefs, we believe that we should be sharing things that are healthy for people. And they they committed to stock fresh fruits and vegetables. I'd like to catch up and see how yeah. that move panned out. You know, were they selling enough of them? Did it change the health of that community? Monica, we asked you to join us today to talk a little bit about the tipped wage workers in Chicago. Chicago is on the precipice of being the largest city in America to abolish a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. What do they get now if you're a tipped worker? Is it like $9.48? And yeah. the plan would be that over the course of five years, at 8% a year, they would get up to $15.80 would be the minimum wage that, say, restaurant workers would make. Of note, you wrote, workers could still accept additional tips, so the employers would have to pay them almost $16 an hour within five years. They could still make tips, although I think that's part of the conversation now. What happens to that, and do they come out ahead or not? You also wondered if this will discourage, say, restaurants from opening up in Chicago when they could just as easily put their money in Texas, where you say the minimum wage for tipped workers is $2.13. That's so 1970s of them. So two thirteen in Texas versus what in five years will be almost $16.00 an hour in Chicago for every waiter and waitress and bartender. Wow. Is that going to pass the city council? It looks like they have all the votes. I mean, it just came out of committee today, flew right through committee, and it looks like it has the votes in the full city council. Um, As I said, if this and bring Chicago home pass within the first year of the mayor's tenure, it will, you know, remake Chicago's code. It will scooch it to the left in, in a way I don't think we've seen um, that has ever gone so quickly. I don't see why it would not pass because the votes are there. It's going to be complicated. It's going to be confusing. If we can go by Washington, D.C., people are not going to understand what to do. Tips are going to go down initially. They may level off as they have done in D.C. What I heard from restaurant uh, group owners who did not want to go on the record um, but wanted to be on background as we approached this was this is a one-size-fits-all uh, policy in a very non-one-size-fits-all sector. I mean, you have nail technicians, barbacks, bussers, and then you have, you know, Gene and Giordetti's and Gibson servers who probably make $200,000 a year, much of it untaxed. Having a blanket rule for all of them doesn't always make sense. But I did tell this person, I said, there's no reason you can't pay your high-end server more. This is just the minimum. So if you're going to say that your server who's paying a mortgage and putting kids through school with their serving can't afford it anymore, why don't you pay them more? Yeah, if I'm working at Gene and Giorgetti and I'm making six figures, I do not like this. I'm not going to make that kind of money at $16 an hour in five years. Monica, I've noticed on social media some responses, people saying, well, great, and we don't have to tip anymore. 
uh, or I'm not going to tip nearly as much anymore. Have you seen that in the response to what you've written? And And people are going to be confused, especially in the incremental period. So if Mm -hmm. they're getting an 8% raise, should I be cutting my tip by 8% next year? I mean, the the math is is mind-boggling for an English major like me. Well, I think there will be definitely some confusion. And when I talked to Sam Toya, who's the president of the Illinois Restaurant Association, he says eventually we may end up being like Europe. Uh, I don't want to sound elitist, but I was in Europe recently, you know, visiting my son, but you've probably been as well recently. And you're sort of like, okay, they don't expect a tip, but I really liked them, so I'm going to leave something. And my European friends are going to be like, oh, you're leaving too much. You're such an American. It'll probably end up being like that. Yeah. Whenever I leave two euro, I think, boy, that's cheap, but yeah. it's supposed to be zero. And then I feel guilty if I leave zero. I feel guilty if I leave two because that's so little. It's like, what? And it was only worth two extra yeah. euro. So oh, I thought, I'll leave 10%. And I thought, what are you doing? You're, you're, I'm working against my own best interest here. I always felt weird just leaving coins for the server, yeah. but that, that's two euro of coins. If, if we can go by California and DC, people probably will tip less and and and, but it may even out the other thing is what dc did restaurateurs i don't get this um they said they cannot raise food prices that people's eyes will pop out if the fried rice goes from twenty dollars to twenty five dollars and so they think somehow and i don't know maybe uh, maybe i'm wrong and they're right that it's better to flop on a 20 percent service fee on the bill that people see at the end of the meal when they're not deciding what to order. So the owner and of the, the restaurant order. says, it's not me that's making the money, just so you know. Right. And so, well, well, when it says service fee, the restaurant can do anything they want with it. In D.C. right now, they're saying, if you say service fee, if you say this is for the server, you are going to be legally required to give it to the server. Right now, the law does mm. not require them to give it to the server. And the other thing restaurant owners were saying to me is, I'm like, well, why don't you? Yeah, why don't you just do the service fee? That's what other people are doing. He's like, do you, I'm not going to say it was. I will have to pay FICA on that. I will have to pay taxes on that. The server will have to pay taxes. And I'm like, okay, you don't like paying taxes? Don't live in a society. But um, I think that's largely what it is. Servers at high-end restaurants, maybe not as much as in the past because everybody's using credit cards now. They have enjoyed a lot of tax-free income. Maybe they should. I mean, servers work hard too, but um, that that's part of the unspoken resistance to this. It's sort of talk about tipping without sounding like uh, Mr. Pink, that character who's like, I don't believe in tipping. Um, <laughs> but, but, you know, it's like, I don't know. Like, when I go to Starbucks, is the barista paid a minimum wage or a tipped wage? Because they've always got the, you know, they turn around the little machine and you've got the tip option on your, on the screen. I certainly would, you know, definitely want to be fair to people who make, who count on tips for their li- living. Is the fact that someone who is making uh, $16 an hour also counting on tips? Uh, how, how does that figure in? I mean, this is one of these things where I think, Monica, you say that that the experience in Washington D.C. has been that tips go down at first, and then they just come back up naturally as if people they don't notice it. Because people are still confused. Is there, you know, Washington D.C. had a different implementation plan. Um, in Chicago, it's eight percent, eight percent, eight percent over five years. The proposal in D.C. it was they jumped within four months to fifty percent. People were like, "Oh, and you know, fifty percent, and I'm seeing these service charges. No way." And then people just kind of fell back on what. Americans have done for the last 160 years, which is tip. 
And so I think they're just all it's it's all going to be weird calculations in people's minds. But what problem is this fixing? What, what why are they doing this anyway? What, what what was the reason for this? According to advocates, tipping is a um, a racist and antiquated uh, system that you know that disadvantages women. For instance, you know if the guy's slapping your ass, your butt um, and he says, "Hey, cutie, are you going to tell him get your hands off me?" Or are you going to smile and say, "Okay, I'm waiting for the tip"? Um, that was one of them, and that it was it, it was originally you know for people of color for for former slaves. Like, okay, you can work for a tip, and so they believe it makes it more predictable. Um, uh, Rick Bayless stopped tipping, or he he put a service charge on, and you can still tip uh, early, earlier this year during the pandemic because he said that his servers. You know, in February, if they wanted to, let's say, get a car loan and had to say how much they make each month, well, in February, it's really low. And so they couldn't put a consistent salary in there. And he and he says this gives someone a consistent salary where they know how much that they're going to be able to pay rent this month. And it's not going to be dependent on whether people came into the restaurant or not. So that said, the restaurant's going to suffer if nobody comes into the restaurant, but the workers will not. But the idea is it's going to cost more to eat out because you're going to have to, the restaurant's going to have to pass those fees along. And there are already a lot of places you go now charge that three or four percent. Uh, I forget what they call it now, a uh, COVID fee or health insurance fee or something that they that they add on. And you, you're you're ostensibly allowed to opt out of that. I don't know anyone who ever has. You feel you know, like who wants to be that scale. guy at the restaurant? Yeah, but, mm. but it might not be more expensive to eat out because if you're already a 20 percent tipper and the the um, the restaurant is either adding that to your menu prices or just putting that service fee in there. And maybe it breaks even. And you discipline yourself not to tip on top of the 20%, which is a weird way to think about it. Discipline yourself. Tipping is so, it is antiquated. (laughs) The only reason why we really do it is because we have a system and economy that is depending on all of us to make up for people's wages they should be earning. It is a pretty messed up idea itself. We've just been doing it so long that it's it's second nature. And yeah, when you take a European trip or somewhere... You start to realize that they look at you like you're crazy. They they think it's it's flabbergasting that we would we would do something like tipping. So uh, I'm curious to see what other cities may start adopting a model like this. That gradual uh, incline, I think, is very interesting. I'm curious, Monica. So Sam Toy, I know they've been negotiating. Well, what sense do you get that he's feeling about this? I I I would I would assume they didn't want this to happen, right? But is at least a gradual increase better than what it could have been? Absolutely. And I'll give you guys a little inside scoop. As I talked to against, you know, insiders who did not want to be named, they basically thought that Lori, who she pissed off everybody except for the hospitality community, she was good to not <laughs> They basically intimated that they were promised when, when this person said, when I took out all these loans for my new places, I was promised that this one fair wage thing was not going to happen. And so now I've got to do all sorts of calculations. And so Toya was just like, look, yeah, I'll, I'll represent you guys. Don't worry. I'm not going to let this happen. But then he saw the writing on the wall. Johnson had the votes to make this happen. And so he was not coming from a position of strength. They did their 11th hour. Hey, how about if restaurants that earn more than $3 million a year give people a minimum wage of of $20 per hour? That's what they were floating last week. And they just got slapped down. And so Toyas goes back to his people. He's like, we got to get whatever we can get because this train is leaving. 
So he negotiated uh, a five-year deal versus a two-year deal. So he could go back to his people and say, okay, this is going to happen, but hey, I got this five-year deal, um, which is helpful. But he still believes it's going to hurt mom-and-pop restaurants. Um, I believe, and he, he does believe that, you know, as I mentioned in the story, some big restaurant groups, when they're thinking about opening a new place, it's going to be Texas. But if they go from where they are now to in five years, 1580, that's about a six and a half dollar an hour raise. Say you work a six hour shift, that's 35, 40 bucks that you're going to get extra guaranteed. But I would imagine if you're a good bartender or waitress at a, even a moderately priced place, you're going to make 35 or more dollars in tips anyway. How many of us have been just at a moderately priced restaurant and you leave 10 and you go, they left 10 and they left 10 and that's just this seating? I mean, I've seen the money pile up. I thought what would be a fair amount of money for a waitress or waiter, even if they're only making $10 an hour. I, I wonder how the people clearing the tables feel about this. Do they are they championing this, or are they looking like, be careful what you ask for? First thing, until high-end servers are not in favor of this. One of them wrote an op-ed for the Sun-Times yesterday saying, you know, Brandon Johnson, you just ruined my life. And that was a Gene and Giorgetti server. Wow. Um, but, I mean, that said, I think Gene and Giorgetti's can find a way to either add a service fee or if we go the way of D.C., where the attorney general wants that service fee to be directed right at the server, um, then then maybe they will still make that um, and that and more. You know, the complicating thing, because this thing does have a lot of moving parts, is what about the people who tip out the busser, the who tip out the runner, who tip out the barbacks, who tip out the bartender? You know, with these higher end places, there are a lot of people who get tipped out. Does this apply to people that do your nails and cut your hair? Because they get tipped a lot. And I don't know, a lot of them... I, Yes. Really? So the people that cut my hair now, if they're working for a company that's they, – they, they get paid a sub-minimum wage because they're considered tipped workers? Yep. Yep. Anybody who's um, considered a tipped worker, including nail technicians and people who work at hair salons or people who sweep up at hair salons. Boy, my wife tells me what it costs to get her hair cut, though, and – that's a lot. And and the tip on top of that is a lot. I, I don't know how this is going to affect everybody, how it's going to filter through. I guess there'll be winners and losers, huh, Monica? Yeah. I mean, I always hate and editors always hate that time will tell. But, you know, it, it is such a new thing. Time will tell. Um, Hawaii has tried some different versions of this, not exactly the same. So it's hard to use them a model as a model. But California... I think will tell us sooner than later and DC. Right now I'm thinking what's 90 I normally tip say 20 25%, say 22%. So what's 92% of 22% of the tip I would leave because that would account for the 8% that they just now got as a raise each incremental year over 5 years. Is anybody following what I'm saying here? No, <laughs> you took too many numbers at me. I'm a journalist, bro. <laughs> <laughs> Teachers and calculator makers are going to have. I know. All right. Uh, Monica, really interesting, as always, really informative. Thanks for – you should do this more often, Monica. We really appreciate your help today. Happy to do it. Take care. Thanks, Monica. Monica, see you. Monica, Monica, Monica I'll see you tonight. Tonight at – 
You guys are partying we're somewhere. Going, we're not we're invited. Go, yeah, that's, well, I, that's fine. I got I'm busy. I got. <laughs> I, I got. I got invited to dinner. It's a, it's an exclusive thing. No. Wow. I'm just oh, oh, oh. Are you going to tip, Monica? Hey, I want to re- text me and let me know what this is all about. All right, take care. <laughs> you don't know. <laughs> she doesn't remember. It's like what? Should I be looking I, at my I, my Gmail or what? I I think so. Yeah, I was told. I was told. Hey, we're having dinner with Monica tonight. So. Wow. Oh. Oh my gosh! How did I not remember this? Yes, oh, of course. Thank you for reminding me. I forgot the way you did that. All right, well, take care. Go. Bye. <laughs> oh, see you so- I'll see you soon. I was, see you all. I was talking to somebody on the air the other day, and they said, hey, and we'll see you at the banquet next week. You're the MC, And I went, oh, crap. I <laughs> I do that all the time. I get it. Get I it? do the same thing. It happens. Uh, It'll be in the calendar, not- but it, it, well, that doesn't really mean anything. <laughs> <laughs> That was good stuff. That was really good. I think that's a podcast right there, John. I think we got... I just yeah. think that a lot of the workers are going to come out negative. I could see it. Especially the, the high-end one is really interesting. Yeah, I mean, but I mean, I'm trying to think of what, what's a place where you would go and tip, like a local pub on the corner where you get a burger and a beer. Uh, mm-hmm. A burger and, a say, a couple of beers and some fries. Mm-hmm. Your little basket there with a with one beer. What are you looking at? 20 bucks, right? And if there's four mm-hmm. of you, that's 80 bucks at that table. Um, and 20% of 80 bucks is uh, $16. That's $16 for that table and a tip. It just seems to me like that's not an extraordinary check. That's common. It just seems to me like the math for most people, they're going to come out behind rather than ahead on something. Well, if, especially if people decide not to tip. Now, the thing about yeah, that is yeah, that yeah. When, you're tipping, when you're tipping 16 bucks on, on an $80 check, that's not all going to your server. I mean, they're generally those tips are shared with people in the house, uh, depending on who's you know in the, in the kitchen staff, the bus boys or bus whatever the t- proper term is. Uh, that, that those tips get shared, and so if you're thinking, I mean, you know, one of the things that that I always think when I'm dining out is that these people are are really relying on me to make up the difference between what they're paid and even the minimum wage. And the law says that, that the that the restaurant owner is supposed to do that. That if you don't get enough tips to come out to the minimum wage the restaurant owner is supposed to make that up to you apparently they don't do that often enough and that's one of the reasons that they felt that this law was necessary but as as a diner as someone as a customer i feel like this person is kind of counting on on this tip this is not yep. this is not just a little it's not just an extra thing this is really part of their especially wages. if it's a cash so tip. i would so i would never yes yeah, so i would never you know stiff someone at a restaurant that would be that'd be terrible on the other hand, if, if they're getting the minimum wage, uh, if, they're, if they're if they're being paid, you know, then the, the tipping question becomes a little different, and I, I, it's going to be interesting to see what happens. Uh, this is such a Chicago solution. I mean, we're so progressive. I I just hadn't heard the hue and cry from people going, "Oh, this tipping situation is terrible," or "I'm a subminimum wage worker." Or, are the nail techs and the hair people and all those people that were tipped? It seems to me like a lot of them are getting cash tips and they're not reporting it, and they're coming out ahead more than to the tune of $6 an hour. My gut right now is like, thanks for nothing, uh, Progressive City. This is not going to help me. <laughs> I feel like the idea is one, another one of those where, like, in theory, it sounds great. In practice, there's a lot to work out, right? Because yeah. in theory, my thought would be what the system should be is, yeah, we pay all usually tipped workers, we pay them the standard minimum wage. It should just be a thing already. And then the tipping system can be what a tipping system should be. Not a, you depend on this to live, but a, hey, I'm tipping you for good service. 
great job. Here you go. I hope that the tipping doesn't completely go away. Yeah, that, right. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. I hope that that culture still exists um, and people don't just thumb their nose like, oh, you know, it's more money anyway. That's the hope. And I think if that is what happens, then I think it could work out. But if we just eliminate tips altogether, then, John, you may be right. There's going to be some people on the back end, especially like at those higher end restaurants. I can see why they'd be upset. Man, two hundred thousand. She RPM. said two hundred thousand. Some of those guys make. I oh. believe it. We went to um, Gibson's Italia for a special occasion earlier this year. <laughs> it was a very big <laughs> bill, and the guy that served us was an artist. He was he he had real skills. Like this is a true profession. He was a professional, and we paid him a a lot of money for our table. And there was tables everywhere, and everybody was doing that. A lot of them were businesses. And I could see how that guy made six figures. And he doesn't want a $6 an hour raise. He wants 20% of $600, which is what this expensive thing costs. I mean, there are some big spenders at these restaurants. I mean, John Williams in the house? I mean, come on. It was a rare occasion. It was a rare occasion. All right. Uh, Eric said we are done, and Eric wants to save all the other good stuff we want to talk about for Tuesday night when we record our podcast at Second City. Uh, Brandon will be there. Your friend John Hansen will be there. Uh, the always insightful Austin Berg will be there. I'm not sure what we're going to wear. I think I've kind of kidded you guys about it, but I think Austin and Brandon and John and Eric should wear what they're wearing right now, whatever you're comfortable with. <laughs> I, want, I want to see the real Brandon Pope. And uh, we'll go for about 70 minutes, maybe up on stage, and then we can take some questions from the audience. It sounds like fun. Yeah, I, people are just going to be looking at Brandon's beard. I don't think the rest of us have to I have been. I'll make sure it's nice and oiled and moisturized. So do you shave your upper lip then? Is that what you do? Or is there something going on there? Too? So I, I try to, but I, I usually go to a barber because I got shaky hands. So I'm scared that if I, if I do too much, then I'll just take it off. Yeah, but so. the top of your lip is just this real thin wisp. And then you've got yeah. a whole Santa Claus thing downstairs. Uh, so that's uh, that's the look you're going for, right? You- that's that's the goal. That's the goal. I, I, I did this really for – I'm going to Mexico uh, this weekend for a wedding. But it will still be like this when I see you guys on Tuesday. Oh, that's right. You landed and you got to come do our thing, right? If your flight's I delayed. i got to come on and do that. Yeah, we, we're ready to go. Up. All right. All right. Well, Wheels I wish up. you safe travels. And uh, thanks, guys. Brandon Pope and uh, Eric Zorn were produced – This week by Pete Zimmerman. And we'll drop another podcast on you next week. All right. See you guys Tuesday. Yeah, that'll be fun. See you Tuesday. I'll buy the beers, boys. (laughs) I'll see you. See you later, boys. Thanks. (laughs) Subscribe to the Mincing Rascals podcast on iTunes or the Google Play Music Store. You can now also follow us on Spotify. Or you can keep listening online at WGNRadio.com. 